To get started, and I got to tell you something very special about our church today. Uh, starting today, we have something very special happening at the information table, which you can get. It's called Project Food Pack. And uh, this here gives you an actual shopping list of items you could put in this box. And then these boxes will be sent to uh, families and children who are in need of food. Uh, I, I guess across the world. It's a ministry that had begun by one individual who started putting together some boxes on his own, sending them to places where people were impoverished, and suddenly it began to be, you know, like nationwide. Anything else yeah, about that? Flip it over. Flip it over. Okay. On the back, uh, it, make sure you get one of those flyers. It tells you how to pack it. You yeah. have to buy these items. It'll cost about $10 for yeah. the box. Yeah. And it tells you for what you put in first and how to layer it so it all fits. And yeah, um, yeah it's really I put simple. a banana, I put a banana whipped cream pie, but no, she said that wouldn't. Nothing <laughs> So. But it's it's real easy to do, and it, each box will cost just about ten dollars. So buy. this this comes along. Here's the box. This one happens to be full. It's quite heavy. A lot of cans and stuff in there, and so it'll tell you how to do that whole thing. And at this uh, time of the year, it's great to be able to help uh, folks that are in need of food. So this is what we want to do, okay? So this is one of our brand new ministries from the Children's Hunger Fund. That's where it began, so. All right, I have so much to do. This is the fifth week. I can't believe it. There's one more week. And uh, I don't know if uh, everybody doesn't, everybody's not betting on me finishing all the notes. <laughs> So I don't know what that means. It must be that I have a reputation, you know. So let me lead us in prayer, and then we will dig in and try to finish as much as we can. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you pursued reconciliation with us. When we were lost sinners, when we were alienated, your enemies, hostile even, toward you, you graciously and lovingly provided for us a savior to deliver us from the greatest enemy in the world, which is sin and death. And you provided for us a deliverance from sin's eternal condemnation and its dominance in our life. And I thank you for that. Now, as we try to learn how to deal with mending broken relationships, uh, help us, O oh Lord, to understand exactly what your word says, because we never want to deal with trying to repair broken relationships through our own subjective ideas. We want to follow the leading of your scripture. Sir, help us to do that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I have a few copies of the notes for the class. If anybody needs them, I'm down to about maybe five. If anyone needs one, that's okay. Um, when we began, we talked about what does reconciliation mean? And basically what it is, it's bringing back together relationships that have been damaged or harmed. And the Bible gives us the greatest example of reconciliation in God himself. Remember uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 through 21. We won't reread that again, but in that passage, we see God initiating reconciliation with us. And he does it through the provision of a, a sacrifice that is 
his son, his precious son, given in our behalf. And so that everyone who believes in him, repents of their sins and believes in him, is now reconciled with God. That means you have peace with God. Paul even says that in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace is the product of reconciliation. In other words, it's the, the, the absence of ad, an adversarial relationship. It's coming back into harmony. And that's what we want to do here. So we learned that there were several components that were necessary for reconciliation to happen. The very first component we talked about, I kind of changed the title from confrontation to communication <laughs> because confrontation sounds a little negative, you know, but it requires that there's a person-to-person -person meeting that you're never going to be able to reconcile from afar. I think some people hope that that happens, uh, but sometimes the the nature of the conflict can be so caustic that there is no other way to do it than, than to get together person to person and deal with this matter. With one person being willing to recognize if they have sinned against another person that they truly have done that and they're willing to repent of that and ask for forgiveness and the other person willingly extends forgiveness. That would be ideally what you hope for. After that, we talked about contrition. Contrition, uh, in, it, it's on page, um, let me give you the notes so you can look at it. I used an old Catholic term there because what it really means is uh, godly sorrow. It's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. So in other words, if there's ever going to be reconciliation, reconciliation is a transaction between two people. You have to have one who's willing to forgive and one who's willing to recognize and take the blame, the fault, if you will, for the sin that occurred. And so repentance is critical. Uh, we talked about that uh, in your notes there on the bottom of page four. You have um, the notes that deal with worldly repentance versus godly repentance. Worldly repentance is somebody who says, you know, yeah, I'm sorry, but he's really, he or she is really just concerned about being caught and the consequences of being caught, but there's no real change of heart or mind or lifestyle. And matter of fact, a worldly repentant person is somebody who wants to negotiate how you repair this relationship instead of saying, listen, I broke it. Whatever I need to do, I will do it. So there's a difference between godly sorrow, godly sorrow that produces repentance. That is a sorrow that comes from God. But one of the things we're going to learn today is because we were so spiritually dead, even repentance has to be granted to us from God. We'll see that as we go on. It's very interesting. And then the third thing that we talked about, the third component, and this is just a review thing, is confession. Confession, we talked about that. Um, if you want your fellowship with God to be restored, the Bible tells you in 1 John 1, 9, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, somebody might say, wait a minute, I always understood that when a person entrusts the salvation of their soul to the death and resurrection of Christ, they are forgiven of their past, present, and future sins. And that is true. 
Theologians refer to that as your positional forgiveness. You stand forgiven positionally in the presence of God. But then there's something called parental forgiveness. In other words, God is your father. And as his child, if you disobey him, you need to confess not to get saved. You are saved. Not to get justified. You are justified. But for the relationship between you and God to be in good order. You know, I knew, I understood when I was raised in my home that um, if my father told me, I want you to cut the grass, and I ignored that uh, when he would come home, I could not walk up to him and say, hey, Dad, give me 20 bucks and can I use your car? You say, why not? Because the relationship was not in good order. I needed to acknowledge that I disobeyed um, his mandate. He asked me to do something, and I didn't do it. So that's why we confess our sins as believers it's not because we're trying to get saved again, we are saved. It's not because we're trying to get forgiven past, present, and future, we are forgiven, but rather because we are in the family of God. And being in the family of God, when we disobey God, we have a tendency um, to fracture or hurt that relationship between you and the Lord. And then we started forgiveness. <laughs> That's where we were last week. And um, remember what forgiveness is. That's the next component. Um, forgiveness. Forgiveness is um, really releasing someone from a debt that could be justly extracted from them. On page five, right under forgiveness, there's some true and false questions, and there's a definition. It's releasing someone from a debt that could be justly extracted from them. Now, one of the things that we learned too last week is that our model for forgiving other people is God and how he has forgiven us. Take a look on page six, page six of the notes. There are two verses highlighted in red from Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians 4, 31, 32 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Now watch this, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So he becomes our pattern. He says it again, Paul, in Colossians 3, 12 through 13. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So your pattern in forgiving is the pattern that God has established. So the best question they ask is this, how then did God forgive us? So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to kind of give you some thoughts that I had taken from the scripture, and then I'm going to quote Mr. Chris um, Barnes at Bronze, Bronze, uh, in his book, um, Unpacking Forgiveness, on what he says about uh, the characteristics of the way God has forgiven us, because we need to learn this. Extremely important. So on page six, you'll see in blue, the best way to get a biblical idea of forgiveness is to answer this question, how did God forgive us? So the first thing we learn is God's forgiveness, number one, of all of our sins is in response to our repentance and confession. By the way, I had to change that 
in my old notes, and you might have them, says he forgives us of our pre-conversion sins. I had another idea was working on. That's, if you got that, scratch out the pre-conversion. Uh, just look at what it says. God forgive, give, forgives us of all of our sins in response to our repentance and confession and faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is what he continually does. I want to show you some passages, actually other than the ones you have there, uh, I want you to look with me in Luke chapter 24. There's an interesting meeting that Jesus uh, has after his resurrection. You might remember that he suddenly appears to the apostles. Well, they were basically hiding out in a room. And our Lord begins to speak to them and to give them some instructions uh, let's pick it up in verse uh, 45. We'll go from 45 to 47. Luke chapter 24. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. So repentance for forgiveness of sins. Very, very significant that Christ points that out. He's talking about the gospel. You know, when we tell people the gospel, there's a proper response to the gospel message. Uh, it's not what you typically hear, that you need to receive Jesus in your heart and some of the um, ways that people try to explain the response to the gospel message. The proper response is to repent. First, mataneo. Remember what repentance is? A radical change in your mind that produces a change in your heart that results in a change in your behavior. So repentance, when it's real, does all of that. So a person, in order to get saved, has to come to grips with the reality that they are hopeless sinners. I'm adding that word because I want to make sure you get that. Hopeless sinners who cannot save themselves in any way. Because I have shared the gospel with people and they have agreed with me that they're sinners, but then they have said, you know, and I'm going to fix that. I'm going to start going to church more. I'm going to try to be kind to other people. I'm going to try to keep the Ten Commandments. And I always have to tell them, no, 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 you don't understand. Your sin has made you dead spiritually. There's nothing you can do. And if you will, please repent of your sin. Change your mind. Acknowledge your, your sin. Take full responsibility before God in that. And then put your trust, place your total trust in the death and resurrection of Christ, and you will be saved. So the apostles were told that when you go and proclaim that gospel message, make sure you preach the response, which is repentance that leads to forgiveness of sins. Another passage that I want us to look at, uh, let's see, take a look in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> yeah, well, I think we'll pick it up in 36. This is the conclusion of Peter's powerful <coughs> message in Acts chapter 2. He gives this wonderful message that gives evidence that Christ is who he claimed to be. 
and he talks about the death of Christ. He talks about the miracles of Christ first that pointed to the reality of his identity. Then he talks about the death of Christ, and then he talks about the resurrection of Christ, and then he talks about the ascension of Christ, and he's bringing every one of those details of the redemptive ministry of Jesus up because he wants the proper response, and he gives us the proper response in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow. He's talking to people, that gathering of Jewish people that were in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Fifty days earlier, many of those people that were gathered and hearing Peter's sermon now were a part of the group that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And now they hear this powerful sermon by Peter. Peter is now indwelled with the Spirit of God, and this powerful message cuts them to the quick, cuts them to the heart, because he says, guess what? He is Lord. God made him Lord. By the way, that's why you don't get to make him Lord. You know, some people say, you know, I'm saved, but I haven't made Jesus Lord yet. Well, it's not your job. It's already been taken care of. He is Lord. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who, re- who has the right to reign in your life. He's the one who, when he gives a command, he should expect obedience. He's Lord. And he is the Christ. And so what was the response? Take a look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what <coughs> shall we do? Let me tell you, if I was a part of the crowd that was yelling, crucify him, crucify him, and then I heard this powerful, powerful sermon, and I realized that I was complicit in the death of my own Messiah. I'd be cut to the heart. Cut to the heart is that deep feeling, sort of almost like terror. Uh, I, I, it reminds me of the days when I was uh, with my brothers, and we were in our, we had an attic bedroom in Chicago, and we were fighting on bunk beds, on the top bunk bed. And um, we were just rocking and rolling, fighting like crazy. I always got beat up the most because I was the youngest one. So I was more or less the thing that they threw, you know. (laughs) But we were fighting and rocking, and suddenly we knocked over the bunk beds, and they crashed on the floor. What we didn't know is in that home in Chicago, they had plaster ceilings. So my dad was in the kitchen, and plaster was falling on him. And then I heard his footsteps coming up the steps, and I was cut to the quick. I was pierced in my heart because terror and anticipation of death was in the air. You know. Fortunately, he did not uh, execute what he could have, if you will. But they, these people are just, can you imagine? I'm complicit in the death of my Messiah. So what does he tell them to do? Verse 38, they said, what should we do? By the way, it's interesting. Peter doesn't give an invitation in this message because they're the ones who asked him. He just finished the message. His message was done in verse 36. So then they said, what shall we do? In verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. And each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Jews understood What it meant to be baptized was not a contribution to their salvation. It was an outward expression 
that they had repented and believed in Jesus. So he says, do this. Repent. Change your mind about your sin. Recognize your sin. Take full responsibility for it. And then the end result would be that you will be saved. Another sermon, chapter, Acts chapter 3, and verse 17. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. Once again, Peter is the guy proclaiming this. Uh, verse 14, let's begin there. But you disown the holy and righteous one. Again, he's talking to Jewish people. So he's indicting them, rightfully so. But you disowned in the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Remember what happened on that Good Friday? Who did they want released? Barabbas, not Jesus. He said, so this crowd is a part of that same crowd that we talked about earlier. Verse 15, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact of which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him his perfect health in the presence of all. They're talking about uh, him healing the lame beggar who was in front of the temple. A brilliant, brilliant act because everybody knew the lame beggar. You know why? The lame beggar was there how many days? All the time because that's the only way he could sustain life is based on the charity of the people entering the temple. So they knew that this guy was lame, but now, I mean, this guy's like some kind of charismatic guy running around the temple, running, shouting and praising the Lord, and they're wondering what in the world happened. So he's explaining, hey, he's been made well on the basis of faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, and now, brethren... I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the apostles, that is, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, what does he tell them to do? Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So repentance, repentance, repentance is mentioned in the scripture. Chapter 5, look in chapter 5 of Acts. Chapter 5. Verses uh, 30, 31. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death. Again, he's still, Peter is really banging this home to that audience you guys are responsible for putting him to death on the cross. Verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel for the forgiveness of sins. Remember I told you that repentance has to be granted? Dekeo is the Greek word granted means to be given as a gift. You say, why does it have to be given? Because people are enter this world in what condition? They're spiritually what? Dead. dead. What's that in the Greek? Dead. dead. Yeah. They're dead. They're not able to respond to spiritual stimuli. They're not able to respond to God in the manner uh, that God would like on their own. You see. And so God grants to them the repentance. Here's another time. Look in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. 
Remember the story of uh, Peter preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his household? Well, this amazing thing happened. The Gentiles responded. They repented of their sins and believed in Jesus, and they were baptized. He goes back to Jerusalem, and the Jewish brethren are not happy with Peter because Peter went into the household of Gentiles and ate with them. That meant that he probably ate food that was not kosher, not in accordance with the dietary mandates of the Old Testament. And they were mad at him about this whole thing. So Peter says, now wait, let me just explain to you guys that this was sovereignly directed. And he tells them the whole story of how God directed him to the household of Cornelius in order to preach the word to him. And then he tells them about their response. And that's why I want to pick up the story of verse 15 of chapter 11. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. That's Cornelius and the Gentiles. Just as he did upon us at the beginning. In other words, what he's saying, the Holy Spirit came upon them in the same way that he came upon us in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Verse 16, and I remember the word of the Lord and how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift, the Holy Spirit, as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? If God's going to save Gentiles, who in the world am I? What authority do I have to say, no, 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 you can't do that? God saved the Gentiles and included them in the church. Look at verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God has granted. He has given as a gift the necessary repentance. Two things are given to you uh, because you're dead and not able in and of yourself to have these things come from yourself. One is repentance and the other is faith. Both come to you as a gift. Peter mentions that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, that you have a faith that has been granted to you just like ours, just like the apostolic faith. So all of that to say, I wanted to make sure that you understood that when God forgives people, there is a condition on him forgiving people. The good news to the world is not this. Hey, world, you're all forgiven. If your mind isn't changed, if you're hostile to me, uh, I just want you to know you're all forgiven. No. The gospel message, yes, is about the death and resurrection of Christ. But then the proper response is what? What do you have to do? Repent and believe. So it's important that we understand that there is a condition that people have to meet in order to receive the forgiveness of God. Matter of fact, let me show you on, let me show you his notes, page seven. Uh, it, it talks about Chris, uh, Chris uh, Bronze in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, summarizes how God ha has forgiven us. And it's a pretty good summary. Let me help you understand it. Number one, God's forgiveness is gracious but not free. Uh, it's gracious but not free. In other words, what I mean, or what he means by that, is that God gave his son 
who died in our stead, who surrendered his life as a gift so that you and I might have forgiveness. Do you understand that? So his forgiveness is gracious. It's an act of his divine favor that he is willing to extend release from our sins, from the debt of our sins, which was a debt impossible for you and I to be able to pay back. He releases us from that, and he's gracious in doing it. Number two, God's forgiveness is conditional. Only those who repent and believe are saved and forgiven. We just read, and we didn't even finish that whole list of verses that we got there. Acts 10, 43, of him, all the prophets bear witness. Everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins. But before they believe, the other passages tell us about the necessity of repenting of their sins. Uh, under that uh, number two, it says, God offers the present of forgiveness to all people. Do God offers the present of forgiveness to all people. Does that mean that all people are forgiven? No. Do you understand that? No, why not? They have to repent and they have to believe. And so that, that's a clear fact. Number three, God's forgiveness is a commitment. When God forgives us, he makes a commitment that we are to part to are pardoned from our sin and that it is no longer counted against us. Wow. It's true. Take a look in Acts chapter 10, just to give you an example. I'm, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10. Let's put it this way. There's a condition that you meet in order to be saved and to have your sins forgiven. But there's no condition that you have to keep to keep your sins forgiven. <laughs> Do you get that? <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? You'll see it here in Hebrews chapter 10. When he talks about the new covenant in verse 15, he says, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds. What does he say, folks? I will remember no more. That's good news. <laughs> and then he says after that, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin because the offering has been made in the person of Christ. Securing our forgiveness was costly for God. It was the giving of his son. But once we have uh, obtained that forgiveness, having repented and believed, your sins and your lawless deeds are not remembered anymore. Now you and I have a problem with that. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that we remember, we all have our history books we know of some of the things that we're terribly ashamed of. But God says no. And it's not that his omniscience gets short-circuited. God knows everything. He doesn't remember these, your sins unto judgment. That's what this means here. It says he doesn't remember your sins. He doesn't remember them unto judgment. That's why Paul could write, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God does not remember your sins unto judgment judgment. That's really critical. Take a look in Psalm 103. Psalm 103. 
I am. Take a look, if you will, uh, at verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will, al he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. By the way, uh, that's a great definition of the concept of mercy. He doesn't treat you as your sins deserve, you see. And then verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward us, those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So he separated our sins. And so he does not take your sins into account for the purpose of judgment. So God is very forgiving. By the way, um, I don't know if I had that on the other page. Uh, let me see. I flipped these pages over. Yeah, on the bottom of page 6, uh, this is one of the reasons that uh, Ken Sandy in his book on uh, you know, reconciliation and restoring relationships the Peacemaker, remember The Peacemaker? I think that's the title of it. On the bottom, he took from what he learned from the scriptures and talked about, well, then how, how do we interact with people once we've forgiven them, once we have forgiven them? Since God is, says, listen, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. As far as the east is from the west, I have separated their sin from them. So how should we react to people? And he gave these little practical, practical guidelines on the bottom of page 6. He says, Ken summarizes four promises we should make upon forgiving others who have repented of their sins against us. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this incident again and use it up again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Say, why would you make those promises? Well, do you want to forgive people just like God forgave us? <clears throat> does God bring up your sins again? Does, does God use your sins, your past sins, as a relational bargain, bargaining chip? You know, and I think we harm relationships when we do that. When we extend forgiveness in the face of repentance, and then two months later we bring it up again, in the heat of a new battle. You know, my mother was right. You are nasty. You are this and that. I thought we talked about this before. Your mother was wrong. Remember, we told you. <laughs> so, in other words, we, we, we want to make sure that that's the end of it. That's the end of it. We don't want to keep on poking at the relationship with things that have happened in the past. God doesn't do that to you and I. I am so happy. I am so happy that he doesn't do that to me. Number three, on going back to page seven. So his forgiveness is a commitment. We already showed you from that, from Hebrews chapter 10. Number four, God's forgiveness lays the groundwork for reconciliation. You, you, can't, you can't achieve a harmonized relationship without repentance without a willingness to extend 
forgiveness and without repentance. You can't achieve a harmonized relationship. It's impossible. So um, some people, Dr. Stewart said, some people believe in what is called unconditional forgiveness. Uh, I'm going to, because of the sake of time, I want us to go to the second paragraph because he gets more into definition of it. Unconditional forgiveness declares a person forgiven who has not yet recognized their sin and who believes that they, are not, they, they have not sinned against you. They may even believe that you sinned against them. Unconditional forgiveness chooses to forgive without the offending party acknowledging that they have sinned against you and have not repented of their sins. That's an unconditional forgiveness. Um, now, the problem that we have with that is that our forgiveness is to be followed. Who's the model? Who's the model for the way we forgive people? It's God. Take a look in uh, Luke chapter 17, 3 and 4. There he says, be on your guard, the Lord says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke means to uh, correct error with the truth. It's a verbal uh, explanation. Hey, listen, this is wrong, what you have done. So rebuke them, he says. And then he goes on and he says, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And then, of course, the Lord goes into the story of the, um, uh, the merciless, merciless, merciless servant. Remember that story where the servant is given, forgiven so much, literally millions of dollars from his master, uh, a debt he couldn't pay back. The master forgives him. But when a fellow slave does not pay him back, he puts him in debtor's prison. And God finds out about that and, and deals with them uh, in accordance with the way he treated that person. So we, here's the point, we must never forget the scope of the forgiveness we have received. I told you this last week. No person on planet Earth has ever offended you as much as you have offended God. And yet God forgave you. So if our brother repents, we forgive. We do that. Now, top of page 8. Since in green, since we are to forgive as God has forgiven, list the passages of Scripture where God has forgiven unconditionally. Okay, let's make a list. It's a trick. <laughs> there isn't any passages. And I just wanted to make sure you got that. Uh, it talks about what about the words of Jesus on the cross in Luke uh, 23, 33 through 44. It seems like it's unconditional, but it was a prayer. Remember, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It, it was a prayer request. It wasn't a pronouncement. Christ was not declaring them forgiven. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And if you read on, he was praying that they would be forgiven. And some 50 days later at Pentecost, many of them were forgiven because they what? Repented. Repented. Gary, I think the reason it seems unconditional is because it was, it was the timing of the forgiveness. 
Yeah. Because like, we were forgiven fully at the cross, which I wasn't born. Yeah. So it seems tricky that he forgave me before I repented, and yet I didn't receive the forgiveness until I repented. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, that goes back to the whole sovereignty of God and your salvation. <laughs> yeah. That's a great discussion, but not for today. Because <laughs> 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 I'll never get it through. Now, what do we do if a person doesn't want to repent? Um, and this is where I want to get into a discussion about something called attitudinal forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. Attitudinal forgiveness and transactional. Um, Ken Sandy in his book there, uh, you see where it's the blueprint? Thank you, Cindy, for putting all these little color things. It was a great... Yeah. Now, some of you may have thought, well, surely Pastor Jerry designed these sheets with the color and stuff in it. Well, no. No, you did not. <laughs> okay, well, you were right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, under that blue thing where it talks about um, the components of forgiveness, attitudinal, positional, and transactional, Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, explains that forgiveness can be approached as a two-stage process. The first stage requires having an attitude of forgiveness, and the second, granting forgiveness. Having an attitude of forgiveness is unconditional, and is a commitment you make to God. Sandy goes on to explain, granting forgiveness, however, is conditioned, conditional on the repentance of the offender and takes place between you and that person. You might also distinguish these two stages as positional and transactional forgiveness. So in other words, attitudinal forgiveness is you have already made a commitment as a believer to forgive people based upon the vast scope of the forgiveness that you have gotten from God. So you have made a commitment. You should, as a believer, you should be committed to forgiving people. That's the attitude. It's the commitment. It's the disposition. Your heart is ready to forgive. And so if you get the chance to interact with that person and that person repents, then the transaction is completed. You get it? So you must have the attitude of forgiveness, which is a willingness always to forgive those who offend you. If you don't have that attitude, then chances you're going to be a person who seeks revenge rather quickly. It just happens to people. In, let me show you from Romans 12. I wasn't going to do this, but I'll do it anyways. Romans 12. <clears throat> Paul was writing about um, remember when I preached the sermon on the consecrated believer about presenting yourself totally to God as a living sacrifice separating yourself from this fallen world and having your minds transformed by the renewing of the scripture so that you know what the will of God is well the rest of the 12th chapter Paul is talking about, well, what does that look like when you're a consecrated believer? And all of these exhortations after 12.3 are just telling you, this is a consecrated believer. This is what a consecrated believer does. And he says, and I wanted to get this last part over here where he says in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. We respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace 
with all men. Did you see that? As far as it depends on you. Paul understood that your only control is over you. You can't control everybody. So if you desire to reconcile, you should, no matter what, try to reconcile, but sometimes you can't. And then he says in 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So for the consecrated believer, the caustic emotion of vengeance should never, never be in their heart. You say, why? Because vengeance belongs to who? God. Doesn't belong to you. Well, you say, why doesn't it belong to me? Because you and I, in vengeance, frequently go way beyond justice in the exerting of our vengeance. Not too many years ago on Highway 40, a man was cut off by a woman and on Highway 40, and he got extremely angry and vengeful, followed her closely behind her car, eventually tapped her car, knocked her into the mid part of the highway. The car flipped over and killed her. This is why vengeance doesn't belong to you. You slap me, I shoot you. That's not justice. Do you understand? It's, but that's the way the fallen heart works. So God says, don't do that. What, what about when it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Well, God was directing that in his commandments to the judicial system of Israel, not the individual. And what he was telling the judicial system of Israel, make sure that the punishment fits the crime. That's justice. You see, when Jesus said, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. Why? Because vengeance belongs to who? And you can't be trusted. I can't be trusted to exert vengeance. So I need to have an attitude of forgiveness because it keeps me from vengeance. And more importantly, it keeps me from bitterness. Bitterness. When people become committed not to forgive, they become the most bitter people you know. Uh, because they're just seething. Uh, the person they're bitter at generally gets a good night's sleep every night. They do not. Because they're bitter. They're unwilling to forgive. There's no attitude of forgiveness. What's that old saying? Bitterness is the poison pill that you take hoping it, it brings harms to, harm to others. But you take the pill. <laughs> doesn't harm others it harms you so there must be an attitude of forgiveness and hopefully there's a day when you can have transactional when you can actually extend forgiveness and the situation is resolved okay any questions on that because I want to move on to the next part I'm cover I'm not covering a lot of these notes I'm sorry about that you guys talk too much so I'm <laughs> no um, I, I just want to make sure you get that. This is, this is what you do. And then you, you extend forgiveness when a person comes to you. They acknowledge the sin. You give them forgiveness. You've been already ready to do it as a believer. See, how in the world can you say, well, I'm, God may forgive them, but not me? Who do you think you are? <laughs> See, so it's important that you recognize that. Now, what about on page 9, Restoration. What is restoration? 
Restoration of a person's relationship should follow immediately in the face of true repentance and a desire to be forgiven. Restoration to a privilege or a position must take place, must not take place too early, nor should it take place too late. In some cases, because of the intensity and nature of the temptation in these particular areas of sin, restoration to a position even might be impossible. We kind of talked about that a little. If, if an adult inappropriately touched any of our children in the nursery and that was discovered and they came to the elders and they repented, they would be forgiven because all of the elders are committed to forgiving because that's what God has done to us. But would the person be restored to the privilege of serving in the nursery? Why not? Restoration sometimes takes time before it can occur. Uh, remember when we read the story about uh, Paul arguing with Barnabas about John Mark? Really, that's what it was all about. You see, Paul says, no, we can't take him. When he was with us, he deserted us. It's, it's written there in Acts, um, Acts chapter 15, 36 through 41. The story is told there. But Paul says, no, we can't take him. He already failed us. He disappointed us. He left us. He deserted us right in the midst of the mission. Barnabas, who happened to be related to uh, John Mark, said, no, let's take him. We, he'll, do, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. Well, they disagreed so much that Barnabas and Paul separated. And the argument really at the end of the day was restoration. Paul says it's too early. And Barnabas said, no, we don't want to do this too late. But eventually, John Mark became very useful. Paul even mentions that. And one of the books in the gospel is written by that man who deserted Paul and Barnabas in the first missionary called the Gospel of Mark, you see. So he proved to be a usable tool. But the argument was, hey, this offense occurred. We don't want to restore him too early versus, no, I think he's ready. And believers can disagree about that. They, that's, it's a judgment call. You understand? It's a judgment call. If, let me show you a situation where somebody really damaged the relationship <laughs> of the Apostle Paul. If you look in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter two, verses six through eleven. Uh, let me give you the background. There was an individual who was working hard at disenfranchising Paul from the Corinthian uh, church. He was he was calling to question the reputation of Paul. He was calling to question the motives of Paul. He was calling to question the message of Paul. But because of certain letters that Paul had written and God working in this person's heart, they repented. And so here's what Paul says about that in verse 6. 
sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. It could have been, what that means is that he was excommunicated. He was put out by the, the, the church because of his sin. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Therefore, wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. This is one of the reasons why I wrote to you. You did what you were told to do. Now this man has repented. It's time to, uh, uh, what's the word he uses? Restore. Is that it? Restore your love, commitment to this man. Otherwise, he's going to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So restoration, that's what he's talking about. But restoration, guys, can sometimes be difficult. We've done it here in our church. Uh, and I remember we had so many conversations of it uh, that I eventually had to call up Chris Hamilton over at Grace and tell him the story about, hey, how should we, should this restoration work? And it was years and years and years and years ago about a person who, whether or not they could be involved in the worship team because of something that happened years earlier. And so <laughs> Chris, very funny guy, I, I call him back and I say, hey, Chris, uh, what did you, did you talk to John about? He said, yeah, John says there's nothing in the Bible about worship team members. <laughs> I said, that's your answer? <laughs> he said, no, no. <laughs> He was just kidding me. He, you get that? He was kidding me. Yeah. And then he said, listen, are the elders in agreement that now is the time for restoration? And I said, yeah, do it. I said, okay. <laughs> but it was, we were wrestling with it, you know, because restoration is a hard thing to talk about. And in some cases, you, you're not ever going to be restored. You're not ever going to be restored because there's something... I, I, I believe that about my position. Remember I told you that if I ever was unfaithful to Cindy, uh, even though I might repent and repent before all of you, I think I basically lost in you the ability to teach you with an open heart. Do you understand that? So it might be impossible for me to be restored to that position. And, but it's a judgment call. Restoration is a judgment call. And it sometimes needs a lot of prayer and a lot of counsel. But you also can't avoid it. You don't want to crush a person's spirit. Uh, you don't want to, you know, put a plague upon them, you know, that they're, they're never going to be usable in the kingdom of God. They can never be your friend again. You don't want to do that. That's not fair. Uh, you know, but I know that there's always the question of when. When should I restore them, you know, to my relationship with me? Well, then I want to talk to you now about the divisive person. There's an interesting thing in the Bible about a divisive person, in, specifically in the body of Christ. I want you to look in your Bibles at, um, well, no, you don't have to. It's actually written there. Uh, Titus chapter 3, 10 through 11. But uh, let me read the paragraph. There are certain people with whom it is difficult to achieve reconciliation without the Lord transforming their hearts through regeneration. The factious person would fit into that category. 
often they self-separate it from a local church when they come to the point of realizing that their way, their ambitions, and their purpose is not going to be realized or implemented. 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us because they were never of us. Had they been of us, they would have never went out, but they went out to show that they were never of us. So you have this divisive person, um, and then reading on, they are described as fact, factious, New American Standard, a person who stirs up division, ESV, a divisive person, NIV, and people who cause divisions. And then they're written about in Titus chapter 3, 10, and 11. If people are causing divisions among you, Paul is writing to Titus, give a first and second warning, and after that, have nothing to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth, and their own sins condemn them. So there are certain times, even in the body of Christ, where you can have a person that is very factious. Generally, they are, when I've had to deal with people like that, they are absolutely committed to their way as the right way. And they will destroy the church. In other words, they will do everything in their power to get their way accomplished. And so the Bible says, you know what you do with such a person? You warn them once, you warn them twice, you separate from them, you see. And that's, what that means is that sometimes reconciliation becomes impossible in this, in this life. It becomes impossible. We wish it was always possible, but sometimes it becomes impossible with people. Okay, long ago, my friend Dave, your husband, <laughs> asked this question. What if the offending party shows no interest in reconciliation? That should be in your next sheet. Does everybody have that? Uh-oh, Cindy's got them. I didn't pass them out. Which one do you want? Uh, the first one, that one on that side. If you don't have one, take one. It's very important. Some of you have them at the end of your notes. Some of you don't. That's my fault. This is a work in progress. Just pass them around. There should be enough, more than enough copies. So we're going to get started on this one. We probably won't finish it, but at least we'll get started. Okay, if you got them, uh, there's something in green. There's an observation that I made uh, after all the years of doing biblical counseling, uh, and I wrote it there at the top. In the context of interpersonal conflict, the person who demonstrates an attitude of indifference or ambivalence about reconciliation tends to have the greater control over the terms of reconciliation. However, true reconciliation is not accomplished 
by relational manipulation. What I mean by that, I've seen it. I've seen people say, I don't care. Either way, you know, I'm just tired of this. Uh, no, I mean, whatever he wants to do, whatever she wants to do, I don't care. I'm, I've given up. I'm, and so they're, they're sort of ambivalent. They're sort of acting as if they're indifferent. And the danger is that the person who desires reconciliation accommodates that attitude or that mindset because they want reconciliation. What is it that I have to do? What is it that I have to do? And uh, so the person does whatever they need to do in order to achieve the reconciliation. But they've been manipulated to do that. And that's not a good thing. So be careful of that. But I've seen it time and time again. It's, it's the indifference act. I see it all the time. Well, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care anymore. The other person, but can't we reconcile? I don't care. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, just for clarification, because my mind's probably not keeping up, but uh, is the person you see uh, the person who wants the reconciliation says, I don't care, or the person who doesn't want the reconciliation? The person who, who doesn't, who, who that's a, a great question, because there's two ways to answer it. One way is they want reconciliation, but on their terms. You see, and so there's the person who really wants a reconciliation, and their indifference is used as a tool to get the reconciliation to occur in accordance with their wish. And boy, when you point that out, Cindy always knows when I'm going to have those kind of counseling sessions because I bring a helmet and a flak jacket. <laughs> because. People really get upset, you know, and they'll say, I'll detect in your indifference that you're trying to manipulate them to reconciliation on your terms. You can't. It's God's terms. We reconcile on God's terms. And there's things that you may have to do once you, you know, you, you get reconciled. There are things that you might need to do to maintain that relationship in good order. But you, you can't manipulate. Romans 12:18 says, and it's highlighted in red there for you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you, be at peace. Uh, in the body of Christ, uh, it's interesting that we are mandated in Ephesians 4.3 to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. It never says create unity. That was already done by the Spirit of God when he baptized you into the body of Christ. Every one of you were baptized in the body of Christ. So we're all one in Christ. So what we need to be doing is be diligent to preserve that unity, not to do anything to harm the unity of the body of Christ. Um, I, I had intended at one point to, uh, but I didn't have enough time. I don't have enough weeks. Uh, but. I wanted to talk to you about the fact that sometimes we believers get into battles about things that are not clearly stated to be right or wrong. I remember several years ago uh, sort of interrupting a discussion that I thought was getting a little hot in our lobby over whether a person should vote for uh, Donald Trump or not. And it was getting testy. 
you know, and, and so um, I showed the brothers Romans chapter 14 where Paul gives us principles on what do we do when we're fighting about things that are not clearly stated to be right or wrong. And I showed them those principles in there because I don't want anything to destroy the unity of the body of Christ. The Bible says nothing about, I hate to tell you, the Bible says nothing about that, about who you vote for. I mean, I think you should, I vote for people because I have certain reasons for it. Like for example, I vote for people that I think are good character and um, I vote for people who are not gonna create policies that are in the face of God, sinful and horrible. Um, you know, that's what I do but it's because I'm just using scripture to dictate how I vote. So for example, if a person's uh, pro-premeditated murder, which is called abortion, then I, I can't vote for them if they want to advance that as a policy, or if they want to advance homosexuality or anything else that is against the word of God. I can't vote for them. I can't, because it goes against the standards of God. But that's primary things that direct my life I, in my vote. But anyways, I, there are times when we fight about things that are not clearly stated right or be wrong. We've got to be careful. We want to be at peace. You know, it's okay. I mean, uh, one time, many, many, many years ago, my boys were little, and they were pleading with me to take them to see Star Wars. I didn't even know what that was at that time. So we went and we got in the line of the theater of my boys and we went into Star Wars and they were just, they became Star Wars fans from then on. Star Wars wallpaper, Star Wars. I found Cindy one time as Darth Vader. They dressed her up, as, <laughs> but she did a good job on the breathing part after that. So. <laughs> but they were really crazy into that sort of thing. Well, I go to church the next day and a lady comes up to me and she says, Pastor Jerry, I just want to tell you how disappointed I am in you. And I'm thinking, I'm racing through my mind. Okay, I know I've done a lot of wrong things. Which wrong thing disappointed her? You know? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm sorry, what did I do? And she said, I saw you and your boys lined up at the theater. And she said, don't you know that the money that you give to those people is used to spread false, deceptive teachings and practices and behavior. Um, she was of the yoke that believed that Christians should not attend movies whatsoever. So we had to have a discussion about that. You know, do we cross swords over debatable areas? Uh, drinking or not drinking, it's a big one in the church. You know, whether you should, uh, can have a beer or not, drunkenness is a sin, that's true, all that kind of stuff. But the point is, as much as it's within your capability, be at peace with all men. Even on the issues in which we don't have a clear statement of right or wrong, like music, you know, in churches, just mention music and it's, it's, get rid of that piano and organ thing. Let's get the bass and the keyboards and the guitars out, man. And the other one, you know, is saying, that's the music of the devil. It's got a beat. It has rhythm. It's the music of the devil, you know, and all of that stuff. And people argue about that and get cross swords about the whole thing. Young people saying, I don't even know what a bulk work is, let alone singing it in a song. What does that mean? <laughs> so you have a, that should never be the issue. Hey, you got a dictionary? You ain't got a phone. 
look up the word <laughs> and then sing it because it's a good word. Yeah. Anyways, uh, we start to fight. We shouldn't. Um, under that statement of the, the uh, red Romans 12, 18, sometimes relational peace is not within our control. That is why Paul limits the command, although we should do everything possible to be at peace with others, it will not always come because it will not always come because it also depends on the other's attitudes and response. So that's important. And then we already mentioned the other red verse there, 1219, uh, about vengeance. Uh, here's another one I want to talk to you about here just in our last couple of minutes. And it's about uh, the fight or, I don't know, not a fight, but the lack of harmony between two dear ladies in the church in Philippi. Uh, Yodia and Syntyche, I think is the way you pronounce her name. Uh, a good name for girls, if anybody's <laughs> pregnant. You know, your, your daughter will love you forever if you name her Yodia. Or... <laughs> I like, myself, I like uh, Sennacherib. I think that's a good name. Um, if, you know, so there's, if you ever want, I've got plenty of names for you. To, all biblical, you know. But anyways, if you look at that passage... Uh, in Philippians, well, it's there in red. Philippians 4, 2, 3, Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syndicate to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So what he is saying here is very interesting. This, this is not... Neither one of these women was committing a sin that was worthy of church discipline. You say, how do you know that? Because Paul doesn't fool around with that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when a man was sleeping with his mother-in-law, what did he tell that church to do? You better discipline them. But obviously, this may, must have been some sort of disagreement between these two ladies that is not of a sinful nature. Maybe it was a disagreement about how best to serve the church. Uh, we don't know. What's the best study to bring the women through? But whatever it was, it, it was harming the harmony. And so he is saying to his friend here that help them out. He calls them, he calls them true companion. Help them out so that they can restore the harmony. So get involved in that sense so that you can make sure that this issue, which is not right or wrong biblically, but whatever it is, it's causing a sort of harm to the harmony of the body. So I'm asking you, take a role in trying to bring that together. And that can happen. That can happen. I mean, at one time I was the elder of the women's ministry. <laughs> I was always amazed at how much that can happen. <laughs> but it happens with men too. It's over methods. We cross swords over methods. Personal preferences. We cross swords over personal preferences. And we shouldn't, we should never in any way ever harm the unity of the body of Christ with things like methods. Dr. Lutzer used to tell me all the time, um, methods are many, principles are few. Methods are always changing, principles never do. So there's always gonna be changes of methods and so we shouldn't fight over that. Wow. So uh, there's a lot to read. Next week, we're going to deal with some practical tips on how to deal with conflict.
so we should have a pretty good discussion. And then also next week, I would like to provide some time uh, for you to ask any questions on this. You know, I can't counsel you in front of everybody, so don't say, my husband and I, and give this whole story, especially if your husband isn't here. <laughs> All right? Thanks for being here.